Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Again, our scripture reading, Isaiah chapter 12, uh, the whole chapter, which is just 1 through 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. This, uh, this chapter, Isaiah chapter 12, is really the climax of the book up to this point. On the heels of these incredible promises of the Messiah, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, the promise of uh, the shoot that would come out of the stump of Jesse, out of the promise uh, of the king who was going to be coming, who the government would rest on his shoulders, these incredible promises of Isaiah 9 and 11 culminate in this chorus in Isaiah 12. And what uh, the prophet says here is you will say in that day, and he says that twice the, to start and then again in verse 4, you will say in that day, so this is the, the prophet Isaiah looking forward to what the people who know the Messiah, what their life, what their quality of life with God will be like. So he's saying when that one comes, when the, uh, when the shoot sprouts, when the king comes, when the Messiah reigns and all who come under his loving and gracious reign, this is what your life in that day is going to be like. And so uh, that's us, right? This is the prophet Isaiah looking back thousands of years into the future, looking forward to the Messiah, right? Looking forward to God's grace poured out in Jesus, in saying this is what life is going to be like for his people. For the people, just like Isaiah was living in hopeful expectation of what was going to be, of God's grace that was going to come, he's saying once he comes, once he calls his people, once he establishes his kingdom, this is what life is going to be like for them, which is to say what it's going to be like for us. This is the kind of life that Jesus offers us, offers each one of us. And what stands out to me is just what an exuberant and joyful life is on offer here. 
Did you notice the sheer amount of times that the psalmist starts talking about singing? Right? That God is my song, that He's given me a song, that I'll draw with joy from the wells of God's salvation. Right? The life that Isaiah is looking forward to and describing for us is a life of joy. Jesus, uh, when he came in the Gospel of John, John 10.10, he says it this way. He says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right? This is a picture of what abundant life looks like. A life rooted in joy and gladness and grace. You know, Paul asks a question in the book of Galatians that I often ask myself. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, asks them this question. He says, what has happened to all your joy? What's happened to all your joy? He says, you started out running a good race. You started out with a Christian life marked by grace and excitement and joy and the, the warmth and comfort that comes from knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're accepted by God and in communion with Him. But what has happened to all of your joy? Where is your joy gone? How has it leaked out of you? And I'd like that question to kind of hang in the back of our minds as we look at Isaiah chapter 12. What's happened to our joy? Right? Is your life a life marked by joy? When you think about God, when you think about spirituality, when you think about who God is and what He wants from you and what He represents in your life, do you think about joy? Do you think about thanksgiving and gladness? Now, this isn't to say that life in Christ is not ever hard, right? Or that life in this world outside of Eden uh, isn't constantly a struggle in some way. But that underneath the struggle, through the difficulty... What's on offer here and what's on offer through Christ to each of us is a life of a joy that's deeper than the suffering, than the sorrow, than the anxiety and the worry. That there is a source of life that's given to us and on offer to us that really does mean that you can have a joy that's deeper than all of the troubles of this life. At the center of this passage is verse 3. This passage is an excellent example of something uh, in Hebrew literature that we see a lot. Uh, it's called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M. You can save that for Scrabble. But what it is, it's a literary device uh, that works like a sandwich, where everything uh, before and everything after leads to highlight what's in the center. And it's a way um, in the Hebrew Bible when you're reading the scriptures to say this is their effort to highlight this part. To say that everything else is flowing from this part right here. This is uh, maybe a more artful version of putting something in all caps in an email, right? This is saying, this is the important part. In verse 3 reads, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Everything that comes before it talks about what these wells of salvation mean for our individual lives. Everything that comes after it, me, it looks at what, it, what this joy from the wells of salvation looks like for our corporate life. But in the center is this idea that with joy, we come to the well of salvation. 
You know, wells were a crucial feature uh, in the landscape and life of the ancient Near East where Israel lived their life. It was an arid and dry land. It was a land uh, that to have water was to have life. And so if you were founding a settlement or building a farm or building a city in the ancient Near East, you had to look to build and to settle near a water source. It might be a stream, but in those days and in that part of the world, the streams are inconsistent. During the wet season, uh, when the snows melt and the rains come, the waters and the streams can almost overflow the banks and flood your village. And during the dry season, those streams might dry up to a trickle. And so the single best place to be in the ancient world was near a well, a source of continual, pure, annual, year-round access to water. You might notice, if you're a reader of the Bible, that wells come up again and again. We get stories of people digging wells. We get stories of people naming wells. We have stories of people camping out by wells. We have people fighting at wells, meeting at wells, meeting their spouse at wells. Wells were the center in a lot of ways of the social and cultural life of the villages of the ancient Near East. In a dry land, to have water is to have life. It's to give life to people and crops and animals, to enable society and villages to flourish. In a dry world, they build their lives around wells. Jesus himself uh, tells us, remember when he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4, when he says that what he has to offer is like water from a well, but even better, that what he has to offer is living water. That when you drink it, uh, those who drink it will never be thirsty again. In fact, out of them will flow rivers of living water. So what Jesus does with the well, what he does with this metaphor is to say, look, if if wells are the source of life in a physically dry land where you can have and sustain life, we live in a spiritually dry land, right? We live in a land that's starving for grace and communion. And Christ in a spiritually dry world becomes a source of life, becomes a source of living and abundant water. He offers us this never-ending spring of life in his living water. You know, there's a story uh, that I read some time ago uh, by a journalist visiting uh, ranchers in the Australian outback. So another dry and parched land, but one that cattle farming is core to their existence, raising livestock. And the journalist tells the story of going out into this dry field And seeing uh, acres and acres of ranch land, cattle roaming everywhere, but no fences anywhere built to keep the cows enclosed. And with a surprise, she asked the rancher that she was interviewing, why don't the cattle run off without fences? And the rancher said to her, oh, that's no problem. Around here, we dig wells instead of building fences. Because you see, in in, in their way of farming, in their way of ranching, instead of building fences over thousands and thousands of miles, they would instead dig, dig wells where the cattle could have access to fresh water and knew that the cattle wouldn't branch out far from the well, that they wouldn't leave and stray from the source of water in a parched land, 
That instead of building fences to hem them in, they could drill a well to offer them water. And they wouldn't leave their source of water and life. I'm reminded of Jesus' interaction with Peter. In this moment in the Gospels when many of Jesus' would-be disciples are leaving. When faced with his confusing teachings, when faced with increasing persecution from the religious leaders, his followers begin to peel off one by one, and he looks at his, his core disciples, his 12, and says, what about you guys? Is this the point where y'all are going to leave as well? And what does Peter say? He says, Jesus, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Look, he's found a well. He's found a source of life. And he says, where else can we go? We live in a world that is far better at building fences than at digging wells. A world that's far better at policing who's in and who's out along cultural or political or ethnic or ideological lines. And in the midst of a world that excels at building fences, the church is held together by a well at our center. We come every Sunday when we come in here, we come from different places, don't we? We come in with different backgrounds. We come in with different kinds of stories. We might use different kinds of language to talk about our faith. We might come from vastly different backgrounds. And we're held together in here, not because there's a fence that won't let us leave, but because there's a well where we've tasted life. We come together around the living water of Jesus Christ. We come together and we may be, you may have been journeying towards that well and in that well for decades. You may have been, be a Christ follower of decades. Or you might be taking your first steps in towards the well. But what holds us together is our recognition and our pursuit and our thirst. That in a world that offers only dryness, in a world where we get worn out seeking after life, Jesus offers something that no one else can. He offers clean, living water, pure grace that we can draw from with abundant joy. The passage goes on to talk about what flows out of this well of water, this well of deep life, this well of salvation. And the first thing that it shows us is that flowing out of this well, we find individual gospel renewal. Right, that flowing out of the well that is Jesus, we find in our individual lives the renewal of our hearts by His grace. It starts out, you will say in that day, and the you here is the second person singular, each of you. Each of you will say in that day, and then the answer is also in the first person singular, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. I love this narration of God's salvation. This picture of the gospel that we get here, though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. This is a beautiful picture of what we believe happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. Right, that at the cross, God's anger at sin, his wrath at, at sin in this world was poured out on another so that in, in its place we could receive only God's comfort and His grace. 
That at the cross we see the turning away of God's anger and the turning towards us of God's comforting grace. Now some people uh, would say, and I've, I've heard these questions, I've asked these questions, right? How can a God of love, right? How can a God of grace and love and mercy be angry with any of us? Right, If we're told over and over in the Scriptures that God loves us, that He made us in His image, that He longs to forgive us, how can we say that that God is ever angry with any of His children, with any of His creatures? Well, friends, there's things in this world where the only just response is anger. Right, There's things that happen in this world. Which one of us hasn't been watching the evening news? Right, and hearing some story of violence or abuse and felt what it's like to go, man, I wish somebody would do something about that. Man, I wish somebody would, would bring justice. Right, I was uh, talking with a friend just the other day, a, a really, really kind and gentle older guy whose uh, personal data was stolen in kind of one of these you know, cyber attack kind of situations. He found out that his, his, uh, he had been the victim of identity theft, and then a little bit later that day, he got a notification that uh, a new iWatch, no, Apple Watch had been bought uh, and synced with his account. He found out that somebody had made a withdrawal from a bank account. And I saw this really kind, gentle man really, really upset. He said, there's something just that feels so stirred up in me. It, this violation, like I thought I was safe, I thought my material was safe, I thought my, uh, my data and information was secure, and now I'm angry and I don't know what to do about it, right? And if that's, I mean, as lovely as this guy is, he's a flawed human being, right? Imagine what goes on in the heart of God at all of the injustices of this world, right? Not one data breach, but all of the violations, of his holiness, of human dignity, of the life sanctity, of human property, like all the violations that go on among the seven billion people of the world, that a good God wouldn't be loving if that didn't provoke him towards anger, towards wanting to make things right, to wanting to bring justice into this world. But of course, the difficulty is that right, the, the, the injustice of this world isn't just done by bad people out there. Right, it's also done by us. Right, we who long for God, we who want to know God, we who want to drink from His wells, have to deal with the fact that we also participate in the evil and brokenness of this world. That we, if we're honest, deserve God's displeasure and anger at times. I heard an incredible story the other day from a, a new friend. Uh, he uh, grew up uh, in Minnesota, Minnesota, as he would say. He grew up uh, kind of marginally attending a uh, traditional Lutheran church up there, but without much in the way of faith. He went to college uh, in a rural uh, Minnesota town. And one day on a weekend, he went out, uh, he, like, went out to go do some target practice. He went into the woods and he set up uh, some melons on the tops of tree stumps and got his gun and went target shooting at these, at these melons to see them explode. This is what you do for fun in rural Minnesota. 
One day, uh, that next week, he went to church, uh, went to uh, a small little rural Lutheran church made up mostly of farmers and ranchers and such living there. And he overheard an old man complaining to another old man that somebody had been terrorizing his farm, that somebody had been shooting his sheep. And he had two dead, and he'd seen a couple times of them getting, getting wounded. And so my friend drove back out to the woods, and he went exploring, and sure enough, those woods that he thought were really, really deep and far away from anything backed up to some farmland. They backed up to this man's ranch. And so the next week, he went back into church, and he saw this same man, and he went up to him. And with his head down, he said, sir, I've got something I have to confess to you. I'm the one, right? I'm the one who shot your sheep. It wasn't on purpose. I didn't know they were there. I was I was shooting in the woods. He said the old man put his hand on his shoulder and said, thanks for telling me, it's okay, I forgive you. And walked into church. And he said at that moment, uh, he said that was the moment in his life where he thinks that real faith began. When he looks back over his story, he said that was the first, or learned about theoretically, and went to actually experiencing that here's someone who because they knew the forgiveness offered in Christ, could extend that same forgiveness towards me. And when I felt that man's hand on my shoulder, I felt, I believe, the hand of God reaching out and forgiving me. Or as Isaiah would say, turning away his anger, that he might comfort him. Friends, which of us doesn't need God's comforting grace in this world? Right, We all know uh, ourselves to be living in a world where we are guilty, where we harm other people, where we receive harm from others. And we are in need of God's comfort. We're in need of the God who embraces us in love, who dries our tears, who holds us to himself. All of us in some way come in here with broken and breaking hearts. And we need to know that the God of the universe reaches out for us, not in anger, But with his anger satisfied in Christ, he reaches out towards us in comfort. In fact, he calls the Holy Spirit his comforter, right? That he sends his comforting presence, not just to come alongside us, but to come into us, to minister to our hearts and to comfort us. So the first fruit of this overflowing well of salvation is a heart, an individual heart that knows that God's justice is satisfied, His grace is ours, and we know His comfort. And the next thing that we see, in addition to individual gospel renewal, is corporate gospel witness. Verse 3 is the center. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then verse 4, and you will say in that day. And interestingly here, in 4 through 6, Isaiah switches from the second person singular to the second person plural. So in uh, the, you know, New Southern Standard Edition, he switches to y'all at this point. The Northeastern Edition, he switches to you guys, yins for our Pittsburghians. Right, but he says, look, the individual fruit, you, will know that God has turned away his justice and he's comforting you. But then all of you together will say, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. 
all of you sing the praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let, us be, let, let this be made known in all the earth. All of you shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Right, so not only does this well of salvation hit our individual lives, but it flows out and into our corporate life to become this life of corporate singing and worship and witness. Notice the number of times that it talks about to the nations, to the whole world, to all the peoples of the world. Right, also I think this resonates with what Jesus says again in John 4. Right, what, he doesn't just say, if you believe in me, you'll taste rivers of living water. No, he says, I will become in you a stream of living water, right? A stream that flows out and into the world. God's grace isn't given to us just for us, but it's given to us so that it can flow through us into the world. One commentator, a guy named Leon Morris, uh, says this about John 4. I love this. He says, when the believer comes to Christ and drinks, he not only satisfies his thirst, but receives such an abundant supply that veritable rivers flow from him. This stresses the ongoing nature of the spirit-filled life. I'm sorry, the outgoing nature of the spirit-filled life. There is nothing of the piety of the pond in Christianity. I love that phrase, the piety of the pond. Are you saying, look... Contrasting two things. One is a swiftly flowing mountain stream, right? A stream that flows with fresh water, living water that gives life to the water around it, that flows out from itself and then branches out. He says that's what Christianity offers. Not what he calls the piety of the pond. Think about a dank, stale retention pond, right? Where water flows into it and then it just gets stuck, right? We have those here in Florida. Right? Imagine, you know, you ever pulled a fish out of one of those ponds? You go, I don't think I'm going to be eating this one. You throw that one back. You wouldn't want to bend down and take a drink out of that kind of pond. It might come back with something you didn't intend. Right? And he's saying, look, that the Christianity, if it gets bottled up and stagnant, it goes sideways. Right? That it's never meant, God's grace was never meant to be something that we just enjoy ourselves but something that we receive and then allow to flow out through us to our neighbors, and indeed to the corners of the world. From this, we see there's two problems that we can run into in our spiritual life. Some of us run into spiritual dryness, right? Because we don't regularly with joy draw water from the wells of salvation, right? We live every bit of our life and our work and in, in our relationships, all of it in a parched world. And we haven't cultivated the habits of going to the well, of dwelling with Jesus, of spending time with him in prayer, of going to that source of living water. And, and in the midst of that, we do grow thirsty. But there's another problem that comes from not engaging with our neighbors, right? Buying into what's called here the piety of the pond, right? Which means that you, could, you don't grow spiritually simply by focusing on growing spiritually, Right? You don't grow in your knowledge of God's nearness and His comfort and His grace simply by locking yourself in a room and thinking about it. Right? But the way that we grow is by tapping down into the living water of Christ and reaching out in love towards our neighbors, 
towards the suffering and the hurting, towards those who don't know Him yet, towards our vocations, that in the receiving and in the giving comes the flowing living water that leads to real spiritual vitality. I love about this passage that the, the parts on witness are always the part that's in the plural. Did you notice that? I know more people, in fact, I'm one of those people, who when you hear about the life of Christian witness, Christian mission, evangelism, can easily become super overwhelmed and go, man, I am not a street preacher. I'm not a, somebody that hands people tracts. I'm not, uh, I don't think of myself as a, a courageous missionary. And there's a tremendous release of the pressure that comes when you go, oh, no, no, no. Mission is not an individual sport, right? God could have made a church full of Billy Grahams, but instead he made a, all of us ordinary, everyday people with normal, everyday jobs, living their lives in community, praising God together, supporting one another, nurturing one another, and together seeking to be a witness to his kingdom in the world, together singing his song and telling his story to our neighbors, and to the nations. And the story that Isaiah tells is one in which the nations and all peoples, all of the ethnic groups of this world, come to sing the song of the Messiah. Jesus uh, gives the vision to John in Revelation of this coming through in its fullness. I'll read this and then close. Revelation 7, 9 through 11. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May the deep well of God's grace fill us with joy. May he renew our hearts as we draw life from him so that we together with all of our voices can be knit together in one and sing our song as a community that bears witness to him in the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have become for us a source of living water. That where your stream flows, life is found. Life in abundance. Lord, we confess that we often try to make our own way through this dry world, scraping together what we can. Lord, help us to come instead to you, our source of living water, to drink deeply from your grace, to root our lives in the life that you offer us, so that the world might come to know, Lord, that you are our strength and our song and our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.